Hey, everybody. Hey. It's been again. <laughs> With Ken, Ken and Glenn. Glenn. And when last we left, we were lamenting the fact that we hadn't made it to Tolkien being bitten by a baboon spider when he was two. So we're going to pick it up right there. <laughs> so when Tolkien was two, <laughs> he, he was, was bitten, bitten by, by a baboon, baboon spider. spider. Now, you may wonder to yourself, how did he come to be bitten by a baboon spider? Aren't they indigenous to South Africa? Yes, that's where Tolkien lived and was born. And was born. We don't know if we mentioned that last time. But yeah, so he's playing in, you know, in the yard like you do when you're a toddler. And he is bitten by a large baboon spider, a type of tarantula. Uh, and uh, big fans of Tolkien's work will know that giant spiders figure prominently in his works. <laughs> yes, they, they're like the worst bad guys and the recurring bad guys. Exactly. They're in The Hobbit, the, the colony of spiders that they have to capture the dwarves and they have to f- rescue them. Then, of course, Shelob in uh, Lord of the Rings. Yes, and then Goliath and her, oh, her spawn in the Silmarillion. Who, who's drinking all the light of the world uh, after wounding the trees <laughs> of light. But Tolkien himself is on record as saying, well, I don't really remember the incident. I don't really have any special hatreds for, for spiders, <laughs> and yet. I, I love the man and all of his work dearly, but Tolkien said some things that were probably not true. <laughs> you th- so you um, think he hated spiders? I think, I think, well, the spider thing, yes, and yet, you know, there's, there's lots of things he says about his work and about how he came up with this or that. Right, right. And he either has compartmentalized greatly, like one of my other fans, TJ, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson, yeah, uh, or he just doesn't want anyone to in on his personal secrets, which is well, which is totally legitimate, actually very legitimate, <clears throat> and I and he was quite adamant about separating his life from the life of the creator or the artist. So I think you're onto something there, definitely. There's a great, there's one of the, uh, in the 60s, uh, I forget the photographer's name, he was going around and taking pictures of famous British authors, and he had finally tracked Tolkien down, and he wasn't exactly sure, so he met Tolkien. He and uh, Edith were on Mm -hmm. a trip somewhere, and they were in a hotel, and he said, well, why don't you just come up to the study? We stay in this hotel sometimes, and they've set a room aside for me. And the photographer goes up, and inside this little attic room is one window, a table, and a chair. <laughs> because that's what Tolkien wanted. That's where he wanted to work. And it was always separate from right. the domestic life. And right. so this guy got one photograph of, of – it's a great photograph of him where uh-huh. he's look, looking pensive and thoughtful sitting at the table with the with light, light from the window coming yeah, in. Yeah. But, and the guy was like, I, that's all I've got because this room's very dull. <laughs> um but yeah, that 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 episode really shows how he did tend to separate out right. his work right. from his life. Well, and and in that aspect, time and time again, people would bring up his Catholicism and his Christianity and say, "Well, you can see that clearly reflect, reflected in the cosmological structure of this world you're created." And he would he was very adamant. No, what what the the there there is a difference between, as he put it, allegory and applicability. And that's what he also would maintain when people would say, oh, well, World War II is when you were writing Lord of the Rings, certainly informed, you know, you're writing. And he's like, people seem to forget that being a youth in World War I was just as bad as being a youth in World War II. Right. Because World War I being the one he served in. But, but <laughs> it's funny along those lines. There's a, there's a famous letter that the Germans wrote and says we would. The Germans oh, yeah. wrote and said we would like you to do some more Germanic stuff because we think it's great with this new fancy movement we have called National Socialism. Mm-hmm. And he wrote them back a very snide letter saying no. But but you can look that one up. A more interesting letter is one that he wrote where he said. I think that I would have been a better soldier in this war than I was in the last, because in the last I was fighting for England. 
this one, the Germans have dared to take over the Germanic culture and yes. tradition, which I yes. love and have have worked with so much of my life, and I love it, and they're ruining it. And I think that would make me a better soldier in this war. Right. He's, as a matter of fact, let me see if I can find this quote. But he talks about not only what you just said, but for him, World War II was more he had a. I have. I'm paraphrasing. I can't find the quote. I have a personal grudge against this ruddy little corporal Hitler. <laughs> right for ruining Germanic <laughs> for, culture. For, for ruining the word Nordic and and, and Germanic yeah. is because you know there's are, there are wonderful things. Beowulf, for instance, the Battle of Malden, all these poems, all this literary tradition that he's ruined. Exactly. Yeah. By, by put, put, and and, and uh, there's this great letter. There's a German publishing company that wants to publish uh, a version of the Hobbit. Because, you know, yeah. it's a runaway seller. Sure. We want to publish it. Business is still business. And this is like 1940 or 30. No, it has to be before the war. It has to be like 38. Like, I think yeah. it's 38. Right after Hobbit came out. Right after like Hobbit like came out. So. And, 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 of course, they, the publisher has to ask him, you know, is he Aryan? And his re- so he writes two letters in response. He gives them both to his publisher, Alan Unwin, and says, you can send whichever one you want to them. But, but here are my two responses. <laughs> one was a nice, polite, nondescript nothing. It was just a form letter. Right. Basically Thank says, you for your interest. Please, yeah, please direct your increase to my publisher. But the other one was, if by Aryan you mean the language subgroup, da-da-da-da, because that's the only meaning that word has to a scholar or anyone with education. If by that letter you mean am I Jewish, I am sad to say that I have no Jewish blood, that I respect that noble race, and I would be delighted if I were part Jewish. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's fantastic. If you if you have the chance to get a copy of his letters, which Glenn has right here on the desk I'd right now. I have right here. They're, they're good reading. And actually, Actually, you, before we started rolling, you were talking about these letters, the Tolkien letters. Uh, go ahead and say what you said, because it was just hilarious, and, and oh, I think it's true. Uh, well, first of all, let me say this is a volume selected and edited by Humphrey Carter, who one wrote, of his Who wrote the first biography, the authorized version, back in the late 70s, and it's excellent. Right. Highly recommended. And uh, with the assistance of Christopher Tolkien, and Christopher is uh, is the... Uh, literary executor. Literary executor. He's Tolkien's son, his favorite son, and as well, you that, go through the letters, it's like... It, he really loves Christopher, which is great. But I said, I wonder how the other three children felt. Because, because Christopher is so obviously the favorite. Exactly. He is so obviously the favorite. It's almost awkwardly painful <laughs> how to, much to, to, read, favorite. to read these letters. And when you right. go and look at some of the relationships and the correspondence and things like that, it's like, right. you know, hello, Priscilla. How are you? Hope Christmas is well. And then there's six pages to Christopher with, <laughs> I just read read this, and then I wrote that, and I found that this was this. And would you care to comment on the <laughs> copies that I've included in this letter while you're trying to find oh, Nazis in South Africa. Bye. <laughs> yeah. You know, that illustrates something about Tolkien is that he tended to find find a male comrade that he that he would then have this literary or intellectual relationship with that was kind of special. Right. And, and he I, had that since he was a prepubescent boy. Exactly. And and I think with with Christopher, Christopher had a predilection for the same types of literature and things Tolkien himself had so so yeah that bond so there's a it's not just a familial bond I think it's an actual friendship bond yeah it is I mean they're, they're, Christopher is probably his best friend exactly you know once uh you know C.S. Lewis goes back to the Church of England oh Protestants <laughs> see all right now see here we need to we need to probably stop and clear so we're we're assuming you know who C.S. Lewis is 
What's that you say? You'd like for us to tell you? <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Chronicles of Narnia and other great things? He was one of the screw Tolkien's... tape letters. He was a he was a huge 20th century Christian apologist. But before that, he was just a very talented atheist. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and he's but he's an English writer. He's a he's a professor at at, at Oxford as as Tolkien is. And uh, one of the many many clubs that Tolkien God he loved clubs was the Inklings and the Coalbiters. These are two different clubs he had in the 30s. The Inklings. Their goal was to read all of the Icelandic sagas in Icelandic. To each other. To each other aloud. They did this for fun. At the Eagle and Child <laughs> Inn. The, the Bird and Baby. Uh, the, the Bird the, and Baby. The, the Eagle and Child. Uh, and, and so once they'd finished all through the, the, when they'd finished the sagas, they then just started reading other stuff, and they became the coal biters, meaning right. a group that, that bites the coal because they were you know, bur- burning coal late at night. And so Lewis, C.S. Lewis was a member of the coal biters, and... Lewis is is having a conscious a conscious a crisis of conscience, and so uh, Tolkien and I forgot, oh my God I forget the other name of the other guy but they're trying to say well look we're both Tolkien's a practicing Catholic actually he's not a practicing Catholic he's a he's, Catholic he's perfected it yes, <laughs> he's, he has and the other guy is a, is a Christian so they're trying to lure not lure they're trying to get Lewis back into the fold right and so when he does decide you know what you you've convinced me I am going to believe in a deity and in the Christian mythos again. As a matter of fact, Tolkien is one that says, look upon Christianity as a myth that's true. That's the phrase Tolkien used, and it's like that's right. the t- phrase that made yeah. C.S. Lewis come back. But he goes and joins the Church of England, not the not Catholic the, Church. Not the true Catholic and, Church. Not the exact, and, um, so, and so Tolkien was always a little bit disappointed that Lewis didn't and I, come and, back. And that's really when they started falling out intellectually right. and, and literally. Right. And, and, and there's, there's a great letter in this book that talks about um, this is when he's in the midst of trying to get Lord of the Rings going. This is, right. this is after World War II. He's trying right. to get the writing for Lord of the Rings going, and he writes a, a letter to his publisher basically saying, I will give you Lord of the Rings. It's going to take a while, but what I really want to do is this creation story mm-hmm. called The Silmarillion, and I really need to hurry on that because I've let Lewis read some of it, and I can see it seeping into his work that he's already starting to publish. <laughs> exactly. He, in other words, he's about to scoop me with my own stuff, so we've right. got to get moving on this. And, of course, he didn't. Chris- well, well, what happens is Alan and Unwin goes, oh, wow, this, this, is, this is crazy. They, uh, or maybe it was Houghton. But anyway, the publisher, there's an internal letter where they say to Tolkien's agent, well, let's, in effect, let's make a feint for the Cimmerian to secure the rights to Lord of the Rings. But that's what we really want. Yeah, yeah. And, and his agent shows it to him <laughs> because you know the guy was. To be fair, he was like, "Look, I got, I got to yeah. tell him what's going on." Yeah. So he, so it was, it was nice. If you want to write a book, here's the way you're going to get it right, done. Right. But just so you know. But uh, but so Tolkien like abandons that publisher, goes with another. It doesn't work out at all. So he goes back to the original publisher, and eventually, you know, everything does come out. But yeah, this crazy games. Yeah, eventually. But bringing up. C.S. Lewis. Now, now C.S. Lewis is very overt with the Christian influence. His is and straight up allegory. Absolutely, Nar- Narnia. Allegory. It's a. It's a. I like it. It's a cool story, but it is a straight up allegory straight up. of the Christian faith, the, the Protestant book, Christian. It, faith. Right, and they, they are great books. And so, and so, Tolkien was kind of dismissive of that. He, he didn't like it that it was straight up allegory, like he said. The difference between allegory and applicability is. Applicability means you can say, yes, I can see how this could shape my life. This could help me in this moment. 
Whereas, you know, allegory is you're meant to connect it to the a- larger mythos. Allegory is a creation of the author. Applicability a- is, is a practice of, of the, the reader. reader. Exactly. Or, or, or if it's art, you know, the, the, the viewer, right. the, but whatever. And the thing is, this is where you said earlier, Tolkien said a lot of things that maybe you have to take with a grain of salt. You know, I, I can't see how Tolkien could deny that there were some things of his faith that went into these books. Well, here, it's interesting. I have a particular I passage marked have, here. I see you've got a... Uh, uh, that's, uh, let's see. So... Um, this is, let me, t- let me tell you when this letter was. This is, a, this is a good long letter. This is in 1956, and they're talking about what the Lord of the Rings means. Mm. What is it about? And he's talking about, you know, all good stories have conflict at the center. That's, that's, that's what it is. It's, right, it's a resolution right. of conflicts. And he's talking about people have said, you know, um, and, and especially the reaction to, was this about World War II and, and Hitler and things? Uh, he... Sauron went further than human tyrants in pride and the lust for domination, being in origin an immortal spirit. In the Lord of the Rings, the conflict is not basically about freedom, that is, um, though that is naturally involved. It is about God and his role to divine honor. The Eldar and the Numenorians believed in the one, the true God, and held worship of any other person an abomination. Sauron desired to be God-king. Yep, and so you know when when you start looking at things and and it that that's pretty overt, and hit, and what Tolkien would respond with is, oh, that's not talking about God. I'm talking about Eru the One. Right. It's like, yeah, uh, come on, <laughs> exactly. Come on, Ronald. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's right, which is fine, but but you know it's 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 all there. Right. It, it's all there, and and it's it, it makes it better though. When yeah, you think yeah, and and the thing is, if if one wants to say there's any sort of Catholic influence on the Lord of the Rings, and especially the Cimmerillion, it's going to be a medieval Catholicism. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. Because, you know, the, the Eru or Yuvatar, the one, the creator, you know, he, he creates the order of the angels, the Anur, who help him create, you know, uh, Arda, the world that through is. Through music. Through music. Oh, it's so beautiful. But... This, this this orders of the angels concept is very medieval, and and I and, yeah, and I actually right. love that about the. That's what, one of the things I love about the Cimmerian is the, these orders who then you know when Melkor the deceiver the first enemy is is, is well actually it's not Melkor it's the Numenorians that's right it's when the Numenorians the the, the 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 men of the West the descendants of those who helped the first men who helped fight you know destroy Melkor when they make war on. The gods, the gods, the, the the you know Manwe and, and the orders of angels, the Anur, they, as he says, lay down their guardianship of the world because they were too mighty, and it's like holy crap, that's just... well, it's not that they were too mighty. No, well, that's what it says in the book. It's, no, it, it it says that these are the children of Iluvatar, yeah, the one, and they do not feel that they can interrupt something that is obviously of. Eru's I don't know, creation. man. We're gonna we're gonna have a disagreement on this. I'm gonna have to go go find my copy of the uh, we'll, I be- that's, I believe- that's the next episode. I be- <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's gonna be an episode on just the, the Numenorean invasion of Valinor. Numenor. What's up with that? What's up with that? Maybe the, we should the, end there the on Valinor. The fleet of on the golden. It's it's it's, it's, con- <laughs> it's conflict and conflict, and yes. you've got to tune into the next episode to see <laughs> what happens. But regardless of the wording, the, the, the it it is very medieval in that they lay down their guardianship. Because they acknowledge we're just the order of angels. Here's the real power. Right. 
And that is oh, such a oh, yeah. concept. Regardless, they're laying it right. down to the higher power. Right, right, exactly. So, yes, yeah, so the Order the, of, the, of, the, of the Angels. Of and, which Gandalf is actually a minor one. As is Sauron. As is Sauron. As is Shelob. As are the Balrogs. Exactly. As is Kurunir or Saruman yeah, you, you, and all these guys. But that's and, the thing. When you, when you watch the movies, The Lord of the Rings, and hopefully you're reading the books too, uh, but, you know, what you're dealing with here are angelic beings made manifest in the world to help humanity, specifically those humans that, when they first right. woke up, went, yes, we'll side with good. And I think that's the beauty of Gandalf and the wizards. There were yeah. five oh. wizards sent, and they were demigods. And their directives were, you may not match power for power, power. with other exactly. angelic beings. You can't do that. You can't do it. Forbidden. And that's exactly you what, what Sauron does. He comes right. to match power with power. The other Wizards, two of them, as it says, enter into the West and, and are, are forgotten because no, they from. lost their way. Radagast well, the Brown is the one that's like, okay, we, we, we know about him in The Hobbit, but where does he go after that? He, he disappears from the narrative, too. He's in Lord of the Rings. Is he in Lord of the he's, Rings? Yes, because he's the one who's, who uh, Saruman has sent Radagast to find Gandalf oh, right, and right, say, right, right, Gandalf, right, 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 you've right, got to right, go to right, Isengard. Right, right because Saruman all, needs you. He needs you, right. And Gandalf says, okay, Radagast wouldn't lie, what, to, wouldn't me. lie to me. And then he's captured. Right, exactly. Uh, he is but but Radagast, Radagast was also... Um, but he disappears uh, from the story. I mean, we don't hear about who he's fighting with. Or no, yeah, after, after that, that's, that's the last moment he's in Lord of the which, Rings. Which, now I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. Why not? So... Was that really Radagast that was sent to Gandalf, or a yes. phantasm created nope. by? <laughs> I know, I know. Yes. I'm just saying. But 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 that you know that's the great thing. So so the five wizards are sent, right. and they are not able. They're not allowed to match power with power. Right. Their job is to inspire, not even coerce. That's not even the right word. It's to right. inspire and to aid men in their struggle, so that men may match power right. exactly. against Sauron. Uh, and I, I just think that is that's just one of the, the deepest things to me is how the wizards are sent, right. and that's how they accomplish things. And all of them, but one, fail in right. that task. And, and that's why, and that's why Gandalf is so fantastic. And you know, this whole not matching power for power, when you get to the the Battle of Pelennor Fields and the Siege of Gondor, uh, Tolkien, not Tolkien, uh, <laughs> Gandalf is there on his horse waiting. For that gate to be destroyed and the host to pour in, because he he specifically knows he is to fight the head of the Nazgul. Right. He he, he can put he, his power against him. Right. Well, he's not but, a, but the an thing angel. is, he's also when 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 they have that description of the book, it's like you know he's sitting on the horse and he's and he's and he's very he's very isolated and he's very somber because. He knows he may not be up to the task. Right. He this knows is his he, task. He exactly. Once again, this this is the great thing about Gandalf. He is all he he has that human capacity for that doubt that that saves him from becoming a tyrant himself. Right. You know, and but he knows he's got a, and then he's called away to go pull crazy Denethor away from the pyre of his son who's still alive, right. Faramir. Because he's filled with pity because, as yes. it says, he studied at the feet of Nienna when he was in Valinor, exactly. who is basically the goddess of pity. Right, And exactly. crying, which hey, sounds right. kind of weak, but right. that's what gave but, Gandalf his strength right. in the well, world. Well that, well, that capacity to, to feel that. To, to be to an feel. empath. To be an empath. I mean, exactly. And now we're being told <laughs> we better wrap this up. All right, we will, we will. There may be a third episode of Tolkien and his works, uh, you know. Well, on our list here, I have Tolkien, and that next to it it says part one of Infinity Symbol. Yes, exactly, <laughs> so, part one of Infinity Symbol. So this has been part two of Infinity Symbol. Hopefully you enjoyed it. See you later. Bye.
Then Again with Ken and Glenn is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed listening to Then Again with Ken and Glenn, please make sure that you subscribe and help us out by writing a review. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.